But if you have Bibles, I'll invite you now to turn them to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Today's text, if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles, uh, begins on page 961, and then we'll flip over pretty quickly into page 962. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 35 through 49 is where we find ourselves. So on Tuesday night this week, uh, I jammed my finger. I jammed my, uh, the middle finger of my, my left hand. Uh, I won't raise it for you because that would not be appropriate. But over the last few days, uh, I realized it's been a long time since I really appreciated having full functionality of all five fingers on a hand. It's been a long time since I've had to think about that. Um, simple tasks like getting dressed, uh, like taking my wallet out of my pocket, like picking my kids up, like cleaning dishes, uh, routine, almost mindless, repetitive actions have suddenly required a lot more attentiveness and caution and care. We live a physical, embodied existence. That's obvious, yes? Yet as religious people, as spiritually-minded people, we are inclined to devalue and diminish the significance of the physical. That is until until those physical aspects of our lives become painful or cumbersome or, or even impossible in some cases. And I recognize this. Jamming a finger is tiny on the spectrum of that. Uh, there are far worse things, and some of you are experiencing them right now. Injuries, ailments, sicknesses, cancers. Not to mention the inevitable process that we are all in the midst of, in one way, shape, or form, of aging. So now in my mid-30s, I miss my mid-20s. And as I say that, everybody older than their mid-30s wants to hit me, <laughs> but you won't, because then you'll jam your finger, and <laughs> where will that leave us? Small, small as it is, though, this, this physical, tiny physical ailment has been a tangible reminder for me this week that it is not only our souls but our bodies that cry out for the saving work of God. It is not only the immaterial part of us, but our flesh and our blood and our bone that embody the true story of the world. What's that story? That created from the dust and called very good, our bodies became corruptible, perishable, broken, by the entrance of sin into the world. Our rejection of, our rebellion against God came not only with spiritual consequences, but physical ones. The long and the slow and the painful decay of our physical bodies, ultimately our death, that we return to the dust. This is reality. But as normal as it is, as many times as we listen to Elton John sing the circle of life, it does not satisfy our longings. These increasingly evident embodied reminders only reinforce the reality that things are not the way they're supposed to be. That sin is powerful, that it has real consequences and that we need rescue and redemption from them. One thing that has always made Christianity distinct from other religions and other worldviews is its esteem for the physical body. And not only because it was created by God, but because since their earliest days, Christians have claimed that their bodies, like Jesus' own body, will experience physical resurrection from the dead. Now, if that's hard for you to believe, maybe you're new to Christianity. 
Or maybe you're not a Christian and you're here just exploring what Christians believe. Or maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, but you find this implausible. If that's you, you have company. This was a major obstacle for many in the church at Corinth in the first century. The idea that people would experience physical resurrection proved to them to be even more of an obstacle than believing in Jesus' resurrection. They're like, I can get there with Jesus, but I don't know if I can get there with my own physical body. And we tend to look scornfully on people from days gone by, to think that they are particularly gullible, prone to believe anything and everything that someone taught. But C.S. Lewis called this chronological snobbery chronological snobbery. And throughout the Bible, the prophets and the apostles are constantly engaging with people who are skeptical and cynical. And I say all that to say this, this was just as unbelievable then as it is for us now. And even more, for the men and women in the church at Corinth in the first century, it was also undesirable. Because the prevailing view at this point in time in that part of the world was that physical bodies had little to no value. That at best, they were, as one scholar put it, an embarrassing encumbrance. They were often viewed as tombs in which the soul or the spirit was imprisoned. And so the pinnacle of existence, their definition of salvation, was to leave behind the physical body and to live a purely spiritual kind of life. In contrast, the apostle Paul taught and wrote that there is something infinitely better than escape. There's something infinitely better than escaping our physical body. And we read of it in 1 Corinthians 15. So listen now, I invite you with open ears to this book that we love. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So it is, verse 42, with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a life-giving, the first man Adam became a, a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust, of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. God of life, 
Your spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Your spirit inspired the prophets and the writers of scripture. Your spirit draws us to Christ and helps us to acknowledge him as Lord. We ask that you will now send your spirit to give us deeper insight and encouragement and faith and hope through the proclamation of your gospel. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This text begins with two questions, but from the context, we start to gain gain this sense that they're not really sincere questions. They're more expressions of cynicism. How could someone believe in the resurrection of the dead? And so Paul just goes right for it. He says, you foolish person. A fool, according to the most fundamental usage of the word in Scripture, refers to someone who lives their life as if the existence of God is inconsequential or that God is completely non-existent. Psalm 14 begins, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And so writing to the church, Paul starts here by offering a really bold rebuke. He says, men and women, you are Christians. Your identity hinges on the existence and the power of God. So don't all of a sudden start to think and act and live as if he's not present and powerful and able to do something like this. And from there, the Apostle Paul then builds this three-part response that we'll walk through with the rest of our time. Metaphors for our bodily resurrection, the means of our bodily resurrection, and the hope of our bodily resurrection. Metaphors, means, and hope. So first, metaphors. Metaphors. Bodily resurrection is something that both fits into categories we already have and defies our categories altogether. In that sense, it's actually like many aspects of our faith, the Christian faith. There's a logical basis for the Christian faith. And yet there are these pieces of the Christian faith that defy logic altogether and remain a mystery for us. A pastor named Stephen Um puts it this way. He says, The resurrection is intelligible, but it is also incomprehensible. The resurrection is natural, but it is also supernatural. The resurrection is like something in the world, but it is also unlike anything in this world. And Paul here in this text gets into both sides of that, but he starts by using these two metaphors to illustrate how the resurrection already fits into categories that we have. The first of these metaphors is seeds. Seeds. A seed is buried. It dies, so to speak. And from that death of the seed emerges a tree, a plant, a crop. As Jesus himself said in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. With seeds, there is both continuity and discontinuity. An oak tree emerges from an acorn. It's it's remarkable continuity that something of the same DNA of an acorn becomes an oak tree. But they're incredibly different, as we all can observe. Can you imagine trying to build something out of an acorn? It's not suited for that kind of use. And in similar fashion, the resurrection of our bodies involves both continuity and discontinuity. Or maybe more accurately, continuity and transformation. Continuity and transformation. And Paul doesn't give us specifics as to what exactly that entails, But a few sentences earlier in verse 23, back up in 23, Paul refers to Jesus as the first fruits of this. He's the first one that has experienced this kind of resurrection. 
And when we read the accounts of those who saw Jesus after he was raised, we see something of that continuity and transformation. He's still Jesus. He's still recognizable to those who knew him during his earthly life and ministry. His body is physical flesh and blood. He eats meals with his disciples. His resurrected body, remarkably, still bears the physical markers of crucifixion. There are still holes from the nails in his hands and his feet. There's still a hole from a spear in his side that was pierced and from which water and blood flowed. But Jesus is not just a revived corpse. He doesn't stumble into the gathering of the, of the disciples and look like he's been beat up. He gives them the impression that he's triumphed over death. He's glorious in a new way, and he's able to simply appear in their midst even. So seeds is this one metaphor. There is both continuity and discontinuity, continuity and transformation in our resurrected bodies. The second metaphor is variety, bodily variety. And we constantly observe around us that bodies are not the same. Different seeds, Paul says, produce different kinds of plants. And human bodies, different as they are from each other, human bodies are different from the bodies of other land animals or different from birds or different from fish. Each one has its own beauty and glory, but it's not uniformity. Each one is fit for its own environment, for its own specific purposes. And likewise, heavenly bodies, referring here to the universe, the heavens, the sky, heavenly bodies like the sun, the sun is different from the moon, is different from the stars, and even each star is different from one to the other. Scientists have discovered stars that are 100 times larger in diameter than our sun. Our sun is very average when it comes to the size of stars in the galaxy. So scientists have discovered stars that are 100 times larger in diameter and stars that are only one-tenth the size of our sun. And Paul is saying, since we have a category for, these, for this great variety of physical form, we shouldn't be so quick to write off a physical resurrection body. It's just another type of body fitted for its own environment, fitted for its own specific purposes, namely to live perfected in the kingdom of God. If our observable world contains such variety, and if God is present and powerful, and as Paul writes in verse 38, if God is the one that gives bodies as he chooses, then there's really no reason for us to doubt that he will also form the atoms and the molecules and the cells of a new resurrected body. It's believable. It's logical in that sense. But as much as these metaphors show us that we have logical categories, bodily resurrection from the dead, let's be honest, is, it also defies our categories. It is something altogether different. And we might imagine the Corinthians saying, we might imagine ourselves saying, well, I have seen an acorn turn into an oak tree. I've been able to observe the finished process of that. I've never been able to see a human being die in their resurrected body. So how are the dead raised? I don't know. You can imagine the Corinthians saying that. And Paul goes on then to write about the means of our bodily resurrection. So second, let's talk about that. Verses 42 through 44 set up this contrast between the body that is sown and the body that is raised. And Paul writes here that what is sown is perishable, sown in dishonor, sown in weakness. In a word, it's natural. It's natural. And none of us need convincing of that. None of us need to be convinced of this. Whether it's in our own bodies or whether it's vicariously through 
family and friends, people that we love, we don't need to be convinced of the perishability and the dishonor and the weakness of our physical bodies. If we live long enough, we will all experience an onslaught of ailments and injuries and decay, some of which, more than others, just aim for the jugular of our dignity as human beings. I wrote most of this sermon across the street at Panera. I tend to hang out there a lot during the week. And while I was there, in just a matter of a few hours, I saw neck braces and knee braces. I saw walkers and canes. For about an hour or so, I sat very near uh, an older couple. And I was assuming that they were married. I guess I don't know that for sure. But while the woman got up to go order food for the two of them, the man, who I assume had some form of dementia, Uh, stayed behind at the table. And while he was there, he was trying to save an entirely different empty table from the one he was sitting at because in his mind, he was sitting there, not here. And so I saw him on a couple occasions turn some people away from this empty table because in his mind, that's where he was sitting. And not till his wife came back that she reassured him, no, no, you're sitting here. This This is our table. Tell me something isn't wrong with that. Tell me something isn't wrong with that. Tell me that you wouldn't struggle in that moment like I did, like I do, to reconcile how a good and loving God who created people in his own image can allow someone over the course of their life to experience something like Alzheimer's or dementia. Or when you visit a nursing home and you see what the end of life looks like for some people and you try to reconcile that with Psalm 8 where the psalmist says that how, how amazing it is that God has created human beings. We have glory and splendor and honor. We're created just a little bit lower than the heavenly beings with dominion over the rest of what God made. And you try to put that together with what you observe at the end of life for some people. Perceiving something about this to be wrong, like every human, like every human being in every generation before us, We pursue then any number of self-originating, self-oriented, self-propelled pursuits to try and take some control back from what feels so uncontrollable. And that's why people are prone to believe in escapism or to practice hedonism, where you just live your life to the nth degree, do whatever you want, hold nothing back. We buy the the products, we pay the memberships, we follow the fads, and at the end of the day, for all our good intentions, all our good efforts to steward our bodies well, to live our lives well— They still fail us. And I say all that to say this. The means of the resurrection of our body cannot be natural. Cannot be natural. They cannot come from within ourselves or our natural capacities. It must come from outside of us. And this is what Paul is driving at when he contrasts the natural body with the spiritual one. He's not talking there about a spiritual existence in the sense of something immaterial or disembodied. His his whole argument here is for bodily existence after death. So spiritual here means the opposite of natural. Perhaps a better word would be supernatural. Supernatural. Even more specifically, something that requires the miraculous intervening work of the very Spirit of God. This is the only possible means of bodily resurrection a supernatural intervention to reverse the natural course that we and all of creation have taken since the entrance of sin into the world. And if it sounded a little bit familiar, 
if there were some echoes in this text, it's because all of what Paul writes here is set against the backdrop of Genesis chapter 1 through 3. The first man, Adam, became a living being. Life breathed into him by God, but soon after rebellious against God, and then subject to death and decay as a consequence of his sin. And we as his descendants, we inherit this. As Adam is of the dust, so we, Paul is arguing here, are of the dust. But refusing to abandon his good creation to the corruption of sin, God himself steps in supernaturally to bring about something that only he can. There's not only God's creation, there is recreation. And in another act that imparts unbelievable worth and value to our physical bodies, God the Son, Jesus Christ, takes on flesh and blood, takes on a physical body himself, and through his own death, through his own resurrection, becomes a second Adam, the last Adam, is what Paul calls him here. Stephen Um puts it this way, he says, the imperishable became perishable so that the perishable, you and I, might become imperishable. Jesus, the glorious one, experienced dishonor so that the dishonorable might experience glory. Jesus, the powerful one, became weak so that the weak might become powerful. Jesus, who deserved life, experienced death so that those who deserved death might experience new life. See, Jesus is not only the first fruits. He's not only the model for bodily resurrection. His finished work is what accomplishes it, and the Spirit of God is what applies it to you and to me. As Paul wrote a few verses earlier, as in Adam all have died, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So to this skeptical, cynical question that we might have or that the people in Corinth might have, how are the dead raised? We might answer, God will raise them up. God will raise them up. In Romans 11, Paul writes, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, which he does by faith in the work of Jesus, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit. Just as we have inherited the perishable, dishonorable weakness of our first parent, Adam, now by faith, by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, you and I might also inherit the imperishable, glorious salvation of Jesus Christ. Or as the poet John Donne put it, as the first Adam's sweat surrounds my face, may the last Adam's blood my soul embrace. As the first Adam's sweat surrounds my face, may the last Adam's blood my soul embrace. Lastly, let's talk about the hope of our bodily resurrection. Apart from physical bodily resurrection, our salvation, the salvation of the people of God is incomplete. I don't know if you ever thought about it that way. You've thought about it in those kinds of terms. We're so inclined to elevate the soul, the spiritual, over the physical, over the body, that even those of us who believe in bodily resurrection tend to view it as icing on the cake or like the floor mats that the dealer throws in when you buy a car. It's a nice addition, an add-on, side benefit, not really the point. But the gospel of Jesus Christ says it is the point. It is the point. It's part of our Apostles' Creed that we say we believe in the resurrection of the body. 
And in a way that differentiates it from all other religions and worldviews, Christianity proclaims that salvation is resurrection, that they are inseparable, that the physical, material aspects of our lives and all of God's creation is so important to him that he will not leave us in the dust. Why not? Why not? Because to do so would be to give more weight to sin's power to corrupt than to God's own power to create and then to redeem and restore. Thanks be to God, Jesus triumphs over sin and death. And so our resurrection is not reincarnation. Our resurrection is not like Avatar, where the immaterial part of us takes on another different physical vehicle. Resurrection for Christians means that just as Jesus' grave is empty, your grave, my grave, will one day be empty. That my decomposed dust and ashes one day will not be sitting in the ground somewhere for all of eternity. Cemeteries, think about this, cemeteries are a shrine to the power of sin. But that shrine is coming down. That shrine is coming down. Like a statue of a deposed dictator who was never meant to reign in the first place, that statue will fall. And the empty graves that you and I leave behind will stand as a testament to the power of the Spirit of God to raise us up, not to leave us in the dust. Our ailments, our illnesses, our decay, they point to one of two realities. That we are either fighting a losing battle that we will eventually succumb to, or that sin and its physical consequences are merely the intermission between God's good creation and his restoration of all things. And reflecting on this, Flannery O'Connor writes this, For me, it is the virgin birth, the incarnation, the resurrection, which are the true laws of the flesh and the physical. Death, decay, destruction are the suspension of these laws. I am always astonished at the emphasis the church puts on the body. It is not the soul, she says, that will rise, but the body glorified. Let this, church, let this fuel your hope. Let this sustain you through your experiences of suffering and pain and decay. Each time that we experience something of the perishable, dishonorable weakness of our bodies, remember that you're embodying the story of the world. This is not the way that it's supposed to be. Remember that you bear the image of the man of dust, and because of your sin, because of my sin, to dust we shall return. But remember also the refrain of verse 49, that just as you have borne the image of the man of dust, you shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We're so inundated with pain and suffering and death that for many of us, and myself included, it becomes hard to love people who are experiencing that. We confess that together in our prayer of confession. We take this resigned kind of posture to it all. It is what it is. Death comes to us all. And in that resignation, we, we stop short of really entering in with people and helping them carry their burdens. We distance ourselves from those who are hurting and those who are suffering. Maybe trying to preserve our own lives as we watch the life of another fade or struggle. What if instead we actually believed in bodily resurrection? What if we actually recognized bodily resurrection as inseparable from salvation? Because we then, through tears, might embrace and esteem and uphold one another as we walk through that together. Because we would be offering, in that moment, we would be offering one another a tangible reminder, not only of what is, but what is to come. 
Philippians 3, chapter 20 through 21, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That, men and women, is our future. For those who have faith in Christ, that is our future. Jesus himself, by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself, will transform these lowly, perishable, dishonorable bodies to be like his glorious body. So like no one else in the world, Christians can hug the neck or hold the hand of someone with cancer, of someone with Alzheimer's, of someone with a chronic illness, even with someone who broke a bone or even jammed a finger, and say in that moment, oh sin, you will die too. Your reign is coming to an end. Rage all you want, your reign is coming to an end. In the face of our weakness, in the face of our fragility, Let us be a people who look each other in the eye and offer the only genuine hope that there is. That just as we now, and we know it, it's inescapable, just as we now bear the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Lord God, you refuse to leave us in the consequences of our sin. Thanks be to you, Jesus for taking on a physical body that you might live and die and rise, that we might rise, that you care enough about us and you care enough to put sin to death, that you do not leave us in the dust. We long for the day where all of these physical consequences of sin will be ended, where we will be free of them. While we sit in the midst of them, give us your grace Help us to love one another well through it. Help us to connect our own suffering and pain to the story of the world and to cry out for your salvation in that moment. Thank you that you are a God who cares so much about us that you care not only about our souls, but you care about our bodies. And thank you that we get to come to this table every week with an embodied, tangible picture of the work that you have accomplished on our behalf, Jesus. That you offered your body, that you shed your blood, that we might not only be forgiven of sin, that we might not only be justified, sanctified, but that we might also be glorified in new resurrected bodies with you one day for eternity. As we long for that day, give us grace as we come now. We pray this in your name. Amen.